Hi, everybody. I am Peter Travers, and this is Popcorn, a remote popcorn, where we tell you what's happening at the movies. And for my money, there's no better movie you can see anywhere than The Five Bloods, and no better performance that you could see anywhere than the one given by my guest, Delroy Lindo, in this Spike Lee movie. So it's my pleasure to welcome Delroy Lindo to this show. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Well, I mean it. What does it feel like? when a movie hits like this at a time where what the movie's about is so much in the conversation that it's a movie of its time so much and your performance which is getting the raves it deserves does it feel good uh it feels fabulous it feels extraordinary um it's a little bit of a balancing act for me personally just in terms of keeping grounded keeping my feet on the ground. Yeah. But the fundamental feeling is, is extraordinary. The people that do what I do as a film critic or in this think what you did in this movie is just so extraordinary. So let the Oscar buzz happen. We'll make it happen. You should just stay away from it all. It's probably the exactly. best thing. That's the strategy. <clears throat> that is exactly the strategy. But having said right. that, it, it does feel really, really good to get this much for the film and for myself to get this much um, positive attention. And you're right; it's it's it seems to it seems to have hit the zeitgeist, a zeitgeist. I'm also thrilled for Spike and for the film and for everybody associated with this work. And you and Spike go back a while. You haven't worked together for 25 years, but you do go back. So yeah. how did this one all come around? How did it happen? I got a call from my reps saying Spike was wanting to reach out to me. A few days later, he did. He called me. He told me about the project, sent me the script, and uh, asked me to give him a call when I'd read it, uh, which I did. And I was really excited about the prospect. And I called him back and I, I, you've probably heard by now that I had some reservations about the, um, the political aspect of um, Paul's character, but broadly- the MAGA I, hat? Yeah, I yeah, was- The MAGA I'm, hat gets a lot of uh, exposure in this movie. You, I mean, I can understand what your reservations are, but as an actor, you've played a lot of different people. What was this specifically that uh, made you a little concerned? Um, because I am profoundly not a Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember saying to Spike, I'm a father, man. I'm a parent. I don't want my son to see me doing this. Um, which in retrospect, well, no, that's it. That was, I remember specifically having that conversation. So my reservations were twofold. Um, the fact that um, that individuals' politics are you know, wildly divergent from my own. And also I had this thought in my head, how, how do I explain this to my son? Mm -hmm. uh, he just turned 19. He was um, 17 going on 18 at mm -hmm. the time. But anyhow, that was a conversation. Well, knowing Spike, uh, I know sometimes you could have conversations with him <laughs> where it might really be a little contentious. Was it that way when you- Not at all. Not at all. From, from the time that Spike called me, um, our conversation was not contentious at all. It was very much two uh, creatives, creative 
um, colleagues talking with a with a with a, a very reciprocal um, measure of respect and regard. But um, I asked Spike if we could change that aspect of the character, and he did not say no. I can't, mm-hmm. which was also really um, encouraging. He didn't. He said, "Let me think. Let me think about. It. Give me a few days to think about this." And he texted me perhaps four four days later and said he really needed um, Paul, the character that I played, Paul, to be a a Trumpite. I then said, "Okay, I get it. I respect that. Uh, give me a few." I then said, "Give me a few days, Spike, to um, go back and and read the script again," which is what I did. So the third time that I'd read the script, that I that I'd read the script, at the end of that third time, I was aware um, that Paul was the part I needed to play, and I had in my head rationalized the casting of that vote in 2016. Once I got past that aspect of it, I called Spike and said, I'm in, I really want to do this. I need to do this. I mean, I've heard this said, and to me, it's very true of your performance in the movie too. It's almost Shakespearean at times. It's especially uh, toward the end in, in that monologue, which is hallucinatory, and yet it's all the ghosts in Paul's life coming back to haunt him or maybe to make peace with him, you know? It's just that when you read that, did you say to yourself, this is one hell of a part? Uh, It wasn't just based on that monologue, even though that monologue has become very much a talking point, and I'm really grateful and affirmed for that, but it it was the whole arc of this man. And you're right, I viewed it as very Wilsonian, as in August Wilson, very Shakespearean, mm-hmm. a large, tragic character that, from an acting standpoint, I couldn't wait to jump in and get started. It was very, very, very exciting. The prospect of engaging this work was incredibly exciting. I want to ask you this about doing a movie that's about the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and also about right now, because these four bloods are coming back basically to bury the fifth one who they left behind. And for some other reason, I don't want to get into too much here because people need to see this movie and still uh, allow it to surprise them in the ways that it should. But Delroy, you're a Brit. (laughs) You have Jamaican parents and you lived a lot of your early years in England. So how close to this did you feel? I was going to ask you, while Vietnam was going on, you were probably too young to be involved in what it was, but what was going on in your mind and in your head when Vietnam was happening? Not much with regard to my awareness of the conflict and my sensitivity um, to the conflict. Mm -hmm. So that is directly connected to the depth and the breadth of the preparation that I did because I I knew that about you know that I was uninformed I was relatively uninformed uh-huh. about the specifics and so I immersed myself uh, my immersion included speaking with vets two of whom are my cousins both of whom in Vietnam 
speaking with them about their Vietnam experiences, specifically speaking with them about PTSD, about the condition of PTSD. I spoke with additional vets. I then spoke with a retired major who was in Iraq. She spoke with me at length about her experiences and specifically PTSD. I looked at film. I read books. I went back and read a book called Bloods, which um, is a phenomenal, it's a verbatim account between 15 and 20 African-American vets speaking about their experiences. I had read it when it first came out. I reread it. Um, so I just immersed myself in as many things, Vietnam, as I could get my hands on. And um, that was the, 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 the foundation of the preparation that I did because I knew, obviously, I knew that um, prior to this process, I, my understanding, quote unquote, was, was very broad. Are you an American citizen now? I am. Can you talk a little bit about growing up with the Jamaican background and then growing up in England and then going to Canada? What it does to you? What's in your head? Who do you think of yourself now? What is your identity now? That's a perfectly legitimate question. And my, ident my identity is probably amorphous. I sometimes refer to myself as a mongrel. Um, you it's know, good I'm, for an actor, Delroy. It's really good to be a mongrel then. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. Exactly. Um, that's a wonderful question. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm a hodgepodge. I'm a hodgepodge. I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality. That's my reality. And I want to believe, as you just said, that it is indeed a wonderful thing for an actor because I want to believe that I, that I can at least challenge myself to go in various different directions, depending on what the requirements of the material that I'm working on are. But in terms of all the places you've lived and you've been, one thing has changed the same, it's your race. So while you're growing up in England, are you experiencing uh, what we're experiencing in the States? Is the UK, uh, as strong or as virulent in terms of its racism as the as America is? What do you think? Yes, 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 and yes. Mm -hmm. Now, it's nuanced, but the resultant impact on people of color is very, very similar. If not, every bit as bad and every bit as virulent. Um, because what one is dealing with in the United Kingdom are the vestiges of colonialism, empire, and a deep, deep, oh. deep-seated belief in not only white superiority, British superiority over all of their former colonial subjects, um, but um, broadly, any persons of color. And I would say that even though in England there are statistically not the same number of guns in the society. Therefore, um, arguably one could say that the gun violence is not as virulent. Mm -hmm. the, the, the psychological, emotional impact of how the racism manifests in England is every bit as virulent and damaging. What was your first experience of it growing up? Two instances I can recall. <clears throat> so 
So I went to an all-white elementary school. I was literally the only black kid in this all-white elementary school. And kids would play and we would, um, we would all pretend to be Superman. And that involved swapping our jackets. Tie, you'd tie the jacket or the sweater around your neck and you'd have a cape, right? <clears throat> and you'd run around and you'd put your arms out. And, and we all did this. The little kid that I um, had exchanged my garment with, all of a sudden came running up to me with terror in his eyes and threw whatever um, garment that I, he had had from me, threw it at me and grabbed what I, his jacket or his sweater from around my neck, grabbed it and was terrified and ran to a car that had just pulled up. This was my friend, right? Where was this coming from? And clearly what had happened was his dad had said, uh, there was a man, and I was vaguely aware of the man in the car, um, had said, you know, get your fang away from this, this, this kid. But the, the terror is what, I, is what I recall in this kid's eyes. And he yanked this away from me. That's one instance I can, I can recall. Second instance. I came home from school one afternoon and I was reciting a little ditty that the kids had been saying at school during our playtime. And the ditty was, <clears throat> uh, eeny, meeny, money, mo, catch by the toe. If he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, money, mo. And I came home very innocently and joyously repeating this ditty that I had heard that everybody had been speaking, that had been saying all afternoon. And my grandma said, what the are you saying? Do you know what that is? And I said, well, no, I don't know. We'd be just saying it. Any, many, money, we'll catch it by the toe. And I don't know that she specifically explained, but what she said was, you don't say that. You say, any, many, money, we'll catch a tiger by the toe. Don't let me ever hear you say that again. And the third instance I would say is that uh, in this neighborhood, walking down the street, going to the store, and somebody had written on a fence, a wood fence in green print, Delroy Lindo eat for breakfast. Just out of nowhere. Evidently out of nowhere. I mean, clearly somebody who didn't like me yeah, <laughs> somebody no, was not yeah. a fan. Um, but these, these uh, again, I don't know that that was necessary. They were necessarily the first instances, but they were clearly because I can remember them so clearly. All these years after the fact, they were clearly um, they made an impression. I could tell even as you relate those stories that they're still right. there that those certain things don't go away from you. And yet they do not. you've made this amazing movie to five bloods about the history of racism, especially in America from slavery to here, cause it's Spike Lee movie. And he's, he's a history professor too. You know, he wants you to know that you, the characters bear the weight of this entire history. They bear the and weight of this, this time of COVID-19 where we have, uh, black people disproportionately, again, uh, suffering from this. And we also live in a time where the protests give us a sense of hope, or at least they do to me. How do you feel about 
the protest and the feeling since George, uh, George Floyd's uh, murder. Are you optimistic for change? Cautiously, I ha- the answer is I have to be optimistic. I'm compelled to be optimistic because A, I have a 19-year-old son. My wife and I have a 19-year-old son, African-American man-child, mm-hmm. who goes out the door every morning. Um, and I have to be, quote-unquote, optimistic because the alternative is uh, not an alternative. Um, having said that, that I am optimistic in quotes, what the time is demanding is a paradigm shift, not cosmetic. I don't mean, I don't mean to disparage the depth and breadth and the diversity of the protests, because they are clearly a wonderful thing. But I'm also aware, if you go back and you look at the 60s and we look at the civil rights movement and we look at the gains that have been made, but in concert with the gains that have been made, directly in concert with those gains, is the fact that the power structure has morphed itself. They morph and they change. And it's like being a boxer on the ropes and you take a blow and you take a blow and you take a blow and you take these blows, but then you still come back. And that is my awareness of how the power structure works and morphs and changes in order to take whatever blows are coming at it, but in the final analysis, the hold on power is unremitting. And so when you talk to me and not only, and the reason that the hold on power is so unremitting is because the power structure, my sense is that the power structure in the final analysis will do literally anything to hold on to that power. So am I optimistic? Yes, I am optimistic with regard to this rejection of status quo. Mm -hmm. But I am also keenly aware of the power structure's ability, intentionality, intention to do whatever it takes to hold on to power by any means necessary, no pun intended. So we all have a battle in our ha- on our hands. We do, and we're living this. I mean, I'm, I'm running out of time with you, which I could keep talking to you forever. I haven't even really dealt with uh, the career, but this show always usually ends in a little bit of song, you know. And I'm just reminded of one of the things that I find so effective about the Five Bloods is the Marvin Gaye in it, you know. Amen. Amen. It's <laughs> just something about the way he was dealing with the most important subjects, but he dealt with it musically, which I find a form of poetry in a way, you know? No question. I got to say something really quickly about Marvin. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the great albums, obviously. Mm -hmm. But as I've spoken about Marvin's music in this film, it occurs to me, and this is in keeping with the, you know, the Shakespearean, Wilsonian theme, the, the, the Marvin is the bard. Marvin is a bard. 
Marvin's music is bard-like um, to the extent that, you know, August Wilson is speaking about um, um, the society in which African-descended people uh, exist and our trials and tribulations and our triumphs in, in uh, dealing in those dynamics. Um, Spike is doing similarly in film. Marvin was doing similarly uh, musically, observing the society that we are in, observing the trials, tribulations, and, and, and triumphs, and feeding it back to us, which is very, very bard-like. And I want to believe that his relationship to this work, The Five Bloods, is completely bard-like and adds a whole other dimension, obviously, to this work. So Delroy, can you take us out with a little bit of Marvin? Mother, mother, everybody thinks we're wrong. But who are they to judge us? Simply cause our hair is long. Oh, we've got to find a way. Bring some understanding here today. Picket lines. That's Beautiful. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this talk. It was really great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All the very best to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now.